Revelation chapter 3. As we come to uh, chapter 3, in our continuing study of Revelation, we come to the letter written to the church in Sardis, uh, a church that was 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. You notice that we've mentioned how that the letters that John writes sort of form a semicircle, and Thyatira is the furthest point north, and now we're beginning to come uh, south. It was a center of great wealth um, for a number of reasons. First of all, its geography, it was located in just prime location. It was a place where five major ancient roads came together. Um, if you went northwest, you would go to Pergamum. If you went west, you would go to Smyrna. If you went east, you'd go to Phrygia. And then southeast to Philadelphia, southwest to Ephesus. It was connected to all the major commercial centers of that time. It was in such a position, it could not help but be a center for trade and for wealth. It was the ancient capital of the kingdom of Lydia. And in 560 BC, its king was a man named Croesus, who his name has been a proverb for wealth. Um, as far as we can tell, the first coins ever minted in Asia Minor were minted in Sardis. Uh, one writer put it, Sardis was the place where modern money was born. This was a place of great wealth. And it wasn't simply that all the roads came there. There was also a river that ran through the center of town, uh, the Pactolus River. And this river came from Mount, Mount, uh, find the name here. Um, Tomalus, uh, I believe, and it brought with it gold. And so, as the 49ers used to do here in California, pan for gold, you could actually go to the marketplace in Sardis and pan for gold and find gold. I mean, gold sort of just came into town by nature, and it came into town because of trade. By the way, the story behind it was the myth of King Midas. You remember the story of a man that everything he touched turned to gold? And, you know, he, he thought this was great until he couldn't eat. And then when he touched his daughter and she turned to gold. And to get rid of this, he had to wash himself. And he washed himself in the Pactolus River. And therefore, the river that ran through Sardis, it is said that the gold in that river came from King Midas. It was just a naturally wealthy city. It had a fascinating uh, history. Um, it was considered impregnable, but it was actually captured by Cyrus, uh, the king of Persia. And Herodotus, the first historian that we know of, tells us a story. Um, because of its geographical location, it was considered impregnable. Um, those of you who have seen the, the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy, uh, Gondor, uh, if you remember, the way that it is built, it's sort of at the top level, comes out from a mountain, this ridge. That's how Sardis was. It was put on a ridge. It was built on a ridge that came out from the mountain Tomolus. 
It was a position that on three sides, I mean, it was sort of straight up and you couldn't come over the mountain. It was considered impregnable. Cyrus needed to take Sardis because it was part of his conquest plan. He, he couldn't be delayed. He needed to get through. So he called his troops together and he made a special offer that if anybody figures out how to take the city, he will be given a special reward. Well, there was one soldier who was just sort of sitting there and staring at Sardis. And he's like, how I, I want to figure out how to do this so I can get the reward. And he was just staring. And all of a sudden he noticed that one of the soldiers, the kingdom of Lydia, was on the wall and he dropped his helmet. His helmet fell over the wall. So the soldier jumped over the wall and sort of followed a path down, got his helmet, and then went back up. And the soldier watched was like, that's the way to get in there. And so that night he took a group of soldiers with him and they followed the path that this soldier had taken and they walked into Sardis and everybody was asleep. There was nobody guarding because it was considered impregnable. Why would you bother to have anyone guarding it and they were able to take the city rather easily I think this will be an important part of what Jesus says to the church at Sardis by the way it was curious that several centuries later Antiochus was able to take Sardis the impregnable through the very same way in 1780 Sardis was devastated by an earthquake but uh, the emperor Tiberius said, okay, no taxes for five years, rebuild the city. He actually gave them a lot of money to rebuild the city. And nine years later, Strabo, the historian, tells us that it was once again a great city. It had risen from the ruins. In terms of religion, Caesar worship was not a big thing in Sardis. They had sort of competed uh, with other cities to become uh, a center, but it was not. In fact, it was a center for the worship of Sibeli, and we don't know that much about it except to know that it was sort of a wild, frenzied, uh, hysterical affair. But religion was not a danger to the Christians uh, in Sardis. They didn't have to worry about persecution. One more thing about Sardis before we move on. It had a reputation. The city had a reputation. Its people had a reputation. They were notorious, if you wish, infamous for loving luxury and the easy life. It had once been sort of the cutting edge. It had been a frontier town. But now, because of all the wealth that had poured in, it seemed that the wealthier that it got, the softer that it grew. And the wealthier it got, the less great it seemed in the eyes of other people. That is, as it increased in wealth, it sort of decreased in greatness. I think all of these things have to be taken into account as we look at what Jesus says to the church in Sardis. Look, if you would, at the first six verses here in Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Before I move on, the comment was made last week that at least some of you, when we come to Revelation, we seem to have this automatic block that this is something we cannot understand. And I was telling someone last night, it's ironic that its name is Revelation, if if we think, in fact, it cannot be understood. Uh, The key to understanding Scripture is Scripture itself, and I hope that will become plain as we go along. Who is speaking? Well, it is Jesus. He is the resurrected Christ, the ascended Christ. And as we have seen in each of the seven letters, he identifies himself in a different way. And I don't think it is simply to break up the monotony, so it's like, well, I said that already. But to identify him in himself in a way that is important specifically to the community that he is addressing. Here he is told, or we are told that he has, he holds the seven spirits, he holds the seven stars. The second part of this, we understand. I think that that's not a problem because in John's uh, vision of Christ, we are told that he holds the seven stars, the seven churches in his right hand. But the, the issue of the seven spirits, I mean, we saw that earlier in chapter one, and it refers to the spirit of God. Now, when we know, when we hear of Jesus holding the seven stars, we know that this speaks of his power. It speaks of his possessiveness that the churches are his. But what are we to make of him holding the seven spirits? What are the seven spirits? Well, the NIV has a helpful footnote in which it says uh, the sevenfold spirit. In chapter 5, uh, the spirit is symbolized by seven eyes. In verse number 6, we are told, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That is, it is speaking of the spirit in his completeness. Seven is a number of completeness. And so this is the Spirit of God. So what does it mean when we say that Christ holds the Spirit of God in his hand? I think it's saying a couple things. First of all, that he is the one who gives the gift of the Spirit. That is the difference, I think, between Western Christianity, the Western Church, and the Eastern Church, the Eastern Orthodox. We believe that the Spirit of God is given not only by the Father, but also by the, by the Son. That the Son gives the Spirit. He holds the Spirit. He is the one who gives the gift of the Spirit. It also means that he knows what's going on, because the Spirit of God has gone throughout all the earth. He knows what is going on in the church in Sardis. I'm not sure that this applies, but it is interesting that the name Sardis is actually plural. And so we find a sevenfoldness or a plurality of wish of the spirit and of the churches. The plurality of the spirit is sufficient for the plurality of Sardis. One more thing, and I have in my notes that this goes without saying, but I will say it anyway. Jesus is seeking to make it very clear. He knows what is going on in Sardis. He sees beyond the facade. They have a reputation, but he knows the reality. And when he says, I know your deeds, they can rest assured, as can we, that he knows exactly what is going on in Sardis. What is the reality of Sardis? You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, as we see in verse 4, this isn't true of all the church, but of apparently a great segment of the church. There are some who have 
who have not followed the rest of the church. That is, the reputation of the church, the public, the PR, is different than the character of the church, the reality of the church. The reputation is that they are alive. They're a vital church. They're perhaps even a growing church, a thriving church. The reality is that they are, their character is that they are a dead church. And I think immediately the question arises, well, what are they doing or what did they do that, we would, that Jesus would say about them that they are a dead church? I think the answer is found in what Christ requires of them. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found... I've not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. I would argue that what would seem to have happened at the church in Sardis, as in the city of Sardis, is that they had become complacent. Like Sardis of old, there is no one watching. They are gone, they've gone to sleep, they're not worried about anybody attacking them, everything is fine. There is no pagan persecution that they have to deal with, as did the church in Pergamum, where the throne of Satan was. There's no Jewish persecution um, from the synagogue of Satan, as we see in Smyrna. There are no heretical teachings from the Nicolaitans, as we saw in Ephesus and Pergamum. There's no immoral behavior. They don't have a Jezebel, as Thyatira did. Um, Things are going along pretty well. That's the problem. You see, it can be argued that persecution is dangerous because people may abandon the faith because of persecution. It could be argued that heresy is worse because many will be led astray by false teaching. But I think worst of all is this internal rot that can come in and it results from complacency and self-satisfaction. The church in Sardis was at peace. But we need to understand that there are two kinds of peace in the world. The first is the peace of conquest and achievement. When you have finished a job, when you've done what you're supposed to do, and you have a sense of, yes, I have done this, and you can sit back and you can relax. You have won the battle. You have fought the fight. You're at peace. The other kind of peace is the kind of peace that is associated with apathy, where you no longer care. It is a piece of evasion and escape. You don't deal with reality. You simply sort of escape and you are at peace. Sardis had forgotten, as so many Christians do, that we are engaged in a war, in a spiritual conflict. They had begun to feel comfortable and complacent. They thought that they were alive and vital. Jesus sees beyond the reputation and says, no, actually, you're dead. You have lost the vitality that you once had. And again, I would argue, and I point out in verse number four, uh, not everyone has gone over to that complacency. There are still some who have not allowed themselves to be drawn in, but it is a real danger. I find it somewhat puzzling that Jesus says, I have found, or I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. And I think... To understand this, we need to think in terms of contrast. I have not found your deeds complete. Others may think that your deeds are complete. Others may think that you're doing a good job. But Jesus says, I have not found 
your deeds to be complete in the sight of my God. In the sight of others, they may think, Church of Sardis, it's a vital church. It's a, maybe a growing church. It's a church that is doing well. And Jesus says, you know, what you have is empty, is hollow. It's a facade. What people see looks good, but I know what is going on. And you lack substance and reality. And like the soldiers centuries before, they needed to wake up or all would be lost. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus gives them a series of commands of what they are due to do to remedy their situation. First of all, wake up. The King James has, be watchful. Um, I think it speaks of a return to consciousness. Of leaving a dreamlike state. Of unreality. To be aware of the danger. I think if, if we think simply in terms of waking up, they're asleep, and if you wake up, everything's fine. Uh, I think it's more than that. I think there's a call to be alert. But beyond that, to leave the unreality of the dream world, of the sleeping world. I don't know. I assume everyone dreams. It seems that some people dream more vividly than others. I think everyone daydreams to a certain extent. We create this unreality. And the first thing that Jesus says is, you need to come out of the unreality. You need to live in the real world. Don't be asleep, because when you're asleep, you don't know what's going on in the real world. You need to wake up and figure it out, that there's a war that is on. Secondly, strengthen what remains. All is not lost, but it was a real possibility. They needed to wake up, become alert, see what was there, what was important, and work on it to shore it up. Remember, Jesus tells them, and we've seen in our studies before, that remembering is not simply mental activity. It isn't simply an intellectual activity. It has moral implications. And we should remember, we should remember that our memories and our minds fight against us. Our minds do not wish to remember the things of God. Our memories do not want us to remember the things of God. It is the battle that, we, that exists in us until either we die or Christ returns. So the call to remember is keep on remembering. Keep on remembering. If we think it's simply a, a question of mental activity, we will think, oh, it comes naturally. You know, some people have good memories, other people don't. And, and, and you know what? The older you get, the worse your memory gets. To a certain extent, that's true. But I think when it comes to the things of God, we need to understand that our minds do not want us to remember. By the way, if you just think, just in everyday terms, aren't you amazed? I am. At the ridiculous things that you remember. I mean, it's like, you know, if you could defragment your brain. It's like, these are things I don't need to... Why do I even know these things? And then things that are of vital importance completely slip our minds. Uh, it's my custom usually with, uh, on Sundays uh, to do the crossword puzzle with the L.A. Times. It's the one day in the week that I do it. And I think almost every time I do it, I'm always amazed when there's a clue and I know the answer. I'm like, why do I even know that? 
Why do, why do I have that bit of information in my mind? Now, I think our minds are fallen, our memories are fallen, and they war against us. Remember, keep on remembering. And what is it that they're to remember? What you have received, what you have heard. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then they are told, obey it. As James wrote to his readers, we studied it. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. See, because otherwise you could actually be asleep and listening to the word of God, listening to this sermon. You could be asleep and listening, but not really hearing it. And then you'd sort of be deceived. Well, I heard the sermon. No, you need to put it into practice. Interesting in the Bible, knowing means doing. In the modern world, knowing and doing are separated. And we talked in Sunday school about these, these separations that occur, this differentiation. I know this. I don't have to do anything about it. I, I just know this information. And just think about watching the news. All the information that comes into your mind that you don't have to do anything about. So for us in the modern world, knowing is quite separate from doing. That's not a biblical concept. In the Bible, if you know something then you must do something about it. And if you claim that you know something and you don't do anything about it, then you've, you've just deceived yourself. You really don't know it. In a biblical sense, you do not know it. And then finally, Jesus says, repent. Now, I would have expected this to be at the front of the line and not at the end of the line. I would have put this verse, I think, and, and not at the end. But if you think about it, I think it's put at the end because it is the sum total of everything that has been said thus far. That is, to repent means waking up from the unreality that you live in. It means remembering what you have received, what you have heard. It means obeying. And again, in the modern world, I think we have sort of dissected. And for us, repentance is, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, my bad. Sorry, you know. And biblically, this is not the case. It means, first of all, coming out of a false worldview. It means remembering what you have been told, hearing it, and then obeying it. What if they don't repent? I have a friend I've told you about that uh, drives his wife nuts, but every time he goes to the doctor, and his health is not good, but he goes to the doctor and his, doc his doctor will say, this is what you need to have done. And he always asks his doctor, what will happen if I don't? Well, the church of Sardis may be saying, well, what if we don't repent? What if we don't repent? What will happen? If you do not wake up, Jesus says, I will come like a thief, and you do not know at what time I will come to you. The power of a law or a command is found in the consequences. I mean, have you ever seen someone trying to discipline their children in public? And they're like, don't do that. Well, it, what, what happens if I don't? I mean, there needs to be a consequence. The power in the Old Testament of the law are the consequences if you break the law. Jesus says, if you do not wake up, like those soldiers centuries before, I will come like a thief. Uh, the simile, by the way, come like a thief, is found throughout the Old Testament. We are in the New Testament, find it in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Peter. We also hear it in Jesus' teaching about his returning when people did not expect him. In Luke 12, but understand this. 
If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You must also be ready. In other words, if, if you knew when somebody was going to break in, you'd be awake, you'd be alert, you'd make sure that he didn't break in. Jesus says, you guys need to wake up because I will come to you. And, I mean, and, and so what if Jesus comes to them? This is where we need to know the language of Scripture. In the Old Testament, the concept of God coming to his people has two aspects, positive and negative. In a positive aspect, it speaks of God visiting his people, coming to his people, oftentimes to deliver them. I think one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is found in the book of Ruth. You know the story of Ruth, how that Naomi and her husband leave Bethlehem, Judah, because of a famine, and they move to a pagan nation next door, Moab. And while they were in Moab, her husband dies, her son, her first son dies, her second son dies. And Naomi's alone. But she decides to go back to Bethlehem. And it says that she decided to return home, for she had heard how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. And and what a wonderful sense and expression. The Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. One is reminded of the Lord's prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. God comes to visit his people with his providence, with his sustenance. That's the positive side. The The negative side is God coming in judgment against his people. The day of the Lord is not only a day of deliverance. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment. What happens when we come to the New Testament? It's the same thing. The coming of God, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ has a positive aspect and it has a negative aspect. The positive aspect, I think we see rather easily in his incarnation. Zacharias, uh, when he's finally able to speak, uh, sings a song, the song of Zacharias. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. King James says he has visited his people. We see it in the second coming, that when Christ comes back, he will take his people to be with him. It is the culmination, it is the completion of our salvation. On the other hand, the coming of Jesus also means judgment. And we see this in his incarnation as well. Those of you who have been here for a while may remember one Christmas I preached what has now become an infamous sermon Uh, Christmas means the condemnation of the human race. Certainly not what we expect to hear at Christmas. But by God sending a Savior into the world, it tells us we are in the path of judgment and we need salvation. When Christ comes back, I think we see the judgment there. Everyone will be resurrected and brought to the judgment seat. And then those who are not his people will be cast into hell. So the coming of Christ has both the positive and the negative aspect. What do you think it means here? Now, please understand that the coming of Christ is not limited to the incarnation and the second coming. Just as God's coming to his people is found throughout the Old Testament, Christ comes to his people, I would argue, day after day. So which is it here in Sardis? Is it positive or is it negative? Is it to bring salvation or is it to bring judgment? I think he is coming in judgment if they do not wake up.
In other words, he's not coming to sort of tap them on the shoulder and say, wake up, guys, I'm here. If they don't wake up, just as Cyrus took the city centuries before, Christ will come in judgment against them. Do you remember what he said to the church in Ephesus? Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and will remove your lampstand from its place. This is the consequence that Sardis faces if they don't wake up, if they don't repent. Christ will come and he will remove the church from Sardis. But then we come to verse 4. And as we find throughout scripture, God always has a remnant. Everyone doesn't go over to the dark side, if you wish. There are always those, the handful of people who remain faithful to the truth of God. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. What can this mean? We are told that they are dressed in white, which would seem to indicate purity, righteousness, that they have the righteousness of Christ. But I think above all, the fact that they are dressed in white indicates that they don't blend in. You can see them because they're wearing white. They're not camouflaged. They haven't been soiled so that you can't tell them from anybody else. These people stand out from the culture. Instead of being conformed to the culture, they have conformed to Christ. And therefore, they will walk with Christ. They have fellowship. They have communion with Christ. Because their thinking is not like Sardis. Their thinking is like Christ. John wrote in his first epistle, We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him just as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Jesus says that these people will walk with him, for they are worthy. This is a little bit disconcerting, because how can anyone be said to be worthy? I think his point is not that they have earned this, but rather they have not disqualified themselves. They have the righteousness of Christ and they have not allowed it to become soiled by conforming to the culture. And then we come to the verse that deals with the overcomers. He who overcomes like them or will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. Several things jumped out at me as, as I was going through this. First of all, just to remind you, um, where Paul would speak in terms of faith and believing, John speaks in terms of overcoming. He isn't talking about victory versus defeat, but victory versus treason. Those who overcome stand with the victor, that is Christ. So to overcome is not to say, we're number one, we've won, it's to say, I stand with Christ. What Jesus promises to those who overcome in each of these letters is eternal life. It is stated in different ways in the different levels, in different letters, but they all point to the life that Christ has purchased for us. See, Jesus spoke of denying him when he was here on earth. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Perhaps now we're given some additional insight into the problem at Sardis. They were denying Christ. Not, not like Peter. Okay? That's the most overt form of denial. But rather in the sense of conforming. 
Because they have a choice. Will they stand with Christ? Will they stand with their culture? And it's not as though they're like, we're not Christians, we turn our backs on Christ, we deny Christ. No, no, no. They had simply through complacency sort of gone over to the other side. And so, rather than saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, they believed that. But in reality, they had sort of drifted away from that to what was in the culture around them. The expression being blotted out of the book of life is first found in the book of Exodus. This is very much an Old Testament idea. I don't know if you remember the story. Uh, Moses had gone up to Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. And while he's there, he's there 40 days, the Israelites sort of get restless. They build a golden calf. They engage in pagan worship as also uh, equally immorality. And, and God knows what is going on and he tells Moses and he tells Moses, that's it. You know, I just delivered these people out of Egypt miraculously. I'm just going to kill them all here and start over with you. Which, by the way, had God done that, I think the promises would, to Abraham still would have been fulfilled because Moses was a descendant of Abraham. And Moses says, no, please don't do that. He says, but now please forgive their sin. If not, then blot me out of the book you have written. In other words, if you're not going to forgive them, you know, God, I'll give you a choice. Either destroy them or destroy me. Please don't destroy them. Destroy me. Blot me out of your book. That is, cast me from your presence. About the time, and actually a little bit after the book of Revelation was written, uh, the Jewish community which was sort of regrouping after the fall of Jerusalem, came up with what are now known as the 18 benedictions, the benedictions that would be given at the end of a service in a synagogue. And if you ever read about the 18 benedictions, they are distinctly anti-Christian. They go out of their way to be anti-Christian. And the 12th one, particularly about the book of life. For the renegades, let there be no hope. And may the arrogant kingdom soon be rooted out in our days. And may the Nazarenes, that is the Christians, perish and be blotted out from the book of life. And with the righteous may they not be inscribed. Jesus says, no. If you belong to me, if you are my people, you will wake up. You will strengthen the things that remain. You will remember, you will obey, you will repent, and your name will not be blotted out of the book of life. You will walk with me in robes of white. And then as these last three letters end, it is the call to hear. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because the church is always active. I'm sorry, the Spirit is continuously active. The Spirit is always speaking to the churches. And so what was written centuries ago is still being spoken, I think, to us today. And we are to put it into practice. We are to take to heart what is written to the church at Sardis. And so let's ask ourselves as we wrap this up. What is the state of the church today? The state of the church in this country? Is it alive or is it dead? I would think that the reputation of the church is that it's very much alive. 
We have Christian colleges. We have churches all over the place. We have Christian TV stations, Christian radio stations, Christian businesses. And we have Christians everywhere. But I would submit to you that perhaps the reputation is not the same as the character. That like the church in Sardis, the church in America has forgotten that we are in a war. We have become secularized. Our view of reality oftentimes is not very different from those around us. And that our outlook is very similar to those described in the Bible as those who are dead in trespasses and sins. We are somewhat fortunate, and I say this carefully, that we live now after the events of 9-11. Because before September 11th, who could have ever imagined that something like that would happen? We could have never imagined that. But now, I think on some level, we're a little bit more alert. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're a little bit more cautious. I think it's the same way America was before and after Pearl Harbor. Who would have ever expected a sneak attack? And once it happened, then we were prepared for anything. But you know what? Even if we didn't have 9-11, and even if we didn't have the story of Sardis, we do have the words of Jesus. He tells his disciples, be on your guard, be alert. You do not know when the time will come. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. And like the church in Sardis, we need to wake up and not live in the unreality of the modern world, but to live in the light of the gospel. One more thing. It occurred to me that some might argue with me and say, listen, when you describe Sardis, you're not necessarily describing the church in Sardis. And we could argue this for the other churches, that when you talk about the church in Ephesus and you talk about Ephesus, you're not talking about the same thing. But have you ever noticed how American you are? Now, those of us who grew up in a different country, um, a different culture, a different way of life, we've now come to this country, uh, I think we don't realize it until we go home. And when we go home, then our friends, our family are like, boy, you're so American. You don't, your experience doesn't even have to be of that type. Have you noticed how Californian we are when we go to other states and people are like, whoa. You know. I would suggest to you that Christians living in a culture, we are affected more by the culture than we would ever admit. And that in many ways to describe Sardis is to describe the church in Sardis. In the same way that to describe America is to describe the church in America. This past week, the Pope was buried. And one thing that people kept talking about are the American Catholics. You know, they're not like those other Catholics. The American Catholics. I would suggest to you that American Protestants aren't much different either. I mean, I think we're just like the American Catholics. In many ways, we are far more American than we are Protestant. Far more American than we are evangelical. In Sunday school, we're going through this book on on the modern age and how much it affects us. I think we need to wake up, come out of the dream world, the unreality, and see things as they truly are. Let's pray together.
Our Father, we live in a culture in which reputation is everything. Character seems not to count for a lot. I suspect that your church in this country is living off its reputation and its character has become very diluted. But perhaps the same is true of us as individuals. May we take to heart what Jesus says to Sardis. May we wake up and come out of this unreality that we've been living in, this virtual reality which is not real at all, and live in the light of who Jesus Christ is. May we see that we are far more American than perhaps we ever realized, and perhaps far less Christian than we ever hoped. May we hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And not simply listen, but obey. We thank you for the gift of your Spirit, and may he work in our lives, not only this day, but in the days to come. We ask that your grace, your Spirit, would go with us as we leave this place. We ask for safety as we travel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together? bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. singing out of the same hymn book, going, what did we miss? <laughs> <laughs>
I don't know. It's just like that thought crossed my mind. <laughs> like, uh, see, what you, you miss a few minutes at church and anything. <laughs> you don't know what Mike is about. <laughs> oh, no.
Não, não é mesmo. 